Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I, I had a video clip that I, I edited and uh, wanted to show you, but um, we have some technical difficulties. This is just part of the modern age, depending on technology, is sometimes things don't work. And so we have elected not to show it to you. But it was a clip from the movie Evan Almighty. And when I first saw that movie, I said, if I ever preach on the flood, I've got to show this clip. I'm sorry that didn't work out, but you know, uh, let me just describe to you. It just shows um, uh, Steve Carell's character, who's Evan, but really playing the role of Noah, standing on the edge of the, the, the ark that he's built and just shouting to the people with urgency, you've got to get on the ark, save yourselves, the flood is coming. And nobody believes him, they're jeering him, just like in the original Bible story. And then all of a sudden this dam bursts and this, the waters from this lake come flooding down the valley. And you know, it's, it's an old movie, so I know this might be a spoiler, but man, if you haven't seen it yet, you're probably not going to see it. And so it, it just this, the water comes crashing through, and it's pretty predictable. But it's a really interesting visual uh, portrayal of what the flood might have looked like. I also had another um, clip I was working on, but just ran out of energy to finish because there were so many pieces to it. But I was trying to collect the scariest portions from the film The Perfect Storm. Because there's nothing scares me more than dark, surging, stormy seas. I, I see that, and I just feel this such a deep sense of dread come over me. And I wanted to catch all the best parts of it and show it to you to give you an idea that really the flood was no joke. What's interesting to me is as I was looking around for movies I could use, the most prominent one was Evan Almighty. And when Hollywood had a chance to take their crack at the Noah and the Ark and the flood story, it's interesting to me that it was portrayed as a comedy, right? as a comedy. And I, and I think uh, that's typical of our general understanding of the story of Noah and the ark. And I want to make sure, because there's, there are a few stories in our culture, and in, the, in Christian culture especially, that are more familiar to us than the story of Noah's ark and the flood. But what I fear is that for many people, the full thrust, the impact of that story is lost to us. And, and it has become about a lot of other things, about animals and things like that. And so I want to give you a few provocative um, statements that I hope will guide us to catch the real essence, the weight of the story of Noah and the Great Flood. Now again, we have a, a, an excellent illustration by Heath. And you know, if you guys aren't aware, we're doing this series, and Heath has been drawing these original hand sketches uh, and... They're awesome. And this one, I, he did it even better than I envisioned when, when we talked about what direction to take. It's a hand emerging out of the water, not coming out, but going under. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, that, that dark, somewhat uh, ominous picture is really the right tone to take when we read with humility the story of God's judgment over the sin of the world. I want to make a, a couple of provocative statements, as I said, and... <clears throat> And the first one is that Noah was not a good man. Now, right away, you're like, this guy doesn't read the same Bible I read. I mean, Noah was a very good man. Is he reading the Quran or what? The truth is, look, my firstborn son, his name is Noah. <laughs> so maybe I really don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and actually, he lives up to this sometimes. Um, we named him Noah because we really love the idea of Noah being the last righteous man in a world filled with wickedness. 
But I think we need to begin talking about Noah with this statement, which I believe is more theologically true than that Noah was somehow a good man on his own right. And let me unpack that for you a little bit. And I'll approach it a little bit sideways. Stay with me and you'll get the punchline. I think it'll make sense to you, all right? You with me? Have you ever, how many of you golf? Even, even recreationally, okay? I'm not, we're not going to make you show us your swing or anything. Just raise, all right. So I, I've, I've started golf in the last couple of years. And uh, I've been hacking at it even before then, but I've just become in love with the game. Have you ever had this round of golf that the first hole started beautifully, an unbelievable drive, laid it right in the middle of the fairway, and then, and then your second shot got you right there, and you just kind of took the, the tip of your handle of your club and knocked it in, and you're like, oh, man, this is awesome. And when you start a round of golf like that, your heart is filled with high expectations and hopes. You're thinking, this could be the round of my life. I've never started this well before. But what happens is reality sets in, and hole after hole after hole, this is more like the what you're seeing, right? And somehow, somewhere around the turn before the 10th hole, you start saying things to yourself like, why do I even play this game? Some people even break a club or two or throw them into the brush. You say things like, I wish I'd never come out this morning. I can't stand the game of golf. And if you can relate to that stupid, silly little illustration, you begin to identify a little bit with what God was feeling, the deep, profound disappointment and sadness each time God looked upon His creation. Because what started out so beautiful, perfect, promising, had become something so other than what He'd always longed for. And if you're not a golfer, you, you may not relate to this, but every one of us has a story to tell about something that began well. It, it tugged at our hearts and said, have some hope. It, it, emerged, it, it evoked in us, even the most pessimistic among us, it evoked a sense of optimism. And we were so hoping that this would be the great, great thing of our lives. And somewhere along the way, it started to sour. Sadly, for some people, that's the story of their marriage. And if, if that's where you are in your marriage, I, I strongly encourage you to come talk to somebody and, and get some help. It can be fixed. But, you know, for a lot of people, what starts out on the wedding day, so filled with high hopes, becomes a source of such deep pain and disappointment. What starts out as a beautiful baby boy at the hospital becomes the little spawn of, of Hades who's running around breaking everything in your home and, and then becomes a teenager that is stabbing you in the heart every day. And What do you do with that? And, and if you can relate to some of those analogies, you begin to understand how profoundly disappointed. And, and disappointed is really too weak a word for it. How depressed I think God was when he thought about what he'd made and then he kept looking down at what it was now and he could not forget its initial glory. I want to show you a couple photos of the governor of California. And I want to ask you what you feel when you see these photographs. <clears throat> now, listen. People in glass houses should not throw stones. My aim, if I look that good on the right side when I'm his age, I'll, I will die happy. The point is not to make fun of somebody, but to say, you know what, that's not just another aging man on the beach. That's Arnold. We know him. He's a part of our lives. He's an icon in our culture. And the reason it's so difficult for me to look at the picture on the right is because in my mind, Arnold will forever be the picture on the left. I'll be back, not oh my back, right? I mean, you know, 
That's the Arnold we've got to fixate on. And the reason it's hard to look at the right is because you still have such a fresh and vivid picture of the glory that once was. And there's this point of comparison. Now, if you just met Arnold and you're from like the bush country somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, you've never heard of this guy, and you meet him on the beach, you might just say, hey, he's a very friendly guy, funny accent, but you know, he's a cool guy. No other opinion. But if you know him, you cannot stop comparing what is to what was, can you? Let me get past that picture because it's not the kind of thing you need to be staring at the whole morning. I think this is the foundation of the story of the flood. Was that God made something great. He blessed it with every possible chance of being perfect. But He also gave it freedom. And that creation used its freedom to destroy itself. And each time God would look at this thing He had made, His heart would sink because it had fallen so far from what it was always meant to be. And you look at Genesis 6, 5-7, to And you see that story starting to unfold. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Ladies, let me just tell you, it's not the masculine pronoun because it's only the men, it's all of us. So it just is one of those times to be universal in our language. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And listen to this, it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I want you to notice something back here in verse 5. You know, when you read the Genesis creation account, the the story of how God made everything in Genesis chapter 1, after each day of creation, there's this very interesting phrase repeated over and over. It says, God saw and behold, it was good. What it says is that after each day of creation, God saw what He'd made. And when it said He saw, it wasn't some kind of a passing glance. That word really connotes this deep gazing upon. God made it, and just the way that an architect might look at his model once it's finished, or an artist at a sketch, really looked at it. I mean, really, really looked at it. Maybe the way a gemologist looks at a stone through that little that monocle thing, and he's gazing at it, and each day after a full and thorough survey, he would pronounce, I looked at it, and it is good. But then here in Genesis 6-5, we pick up that exact same phraseology, but the result is very different. It says here now, because in the intervening chapters, everything has literally gone to hell. Everything is ruined. And now in Genesis 6-5, God looks again and it says, The Lord saw, God saw. He gazed at what he'd made, looked deeply at it, and here's what he saw. And this time, the result of his inspection broke his heart. What he saw that was that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen, this might seem to you a bit of an exaggerated statement. But he says that every intention of the thoughts of human beings' hearts was only evil all the time. Now, you read that and you think, surely he's got to be exaggerating. Even in the days of Noah, as wicked as they were, I've got to believe that when a mother heard her baby cry, it tugged at her heart a little bit and she fed him. 
I've got to believe that husbands and wives felt at least flashes of genuine affection for each other, did at least one selfless thing every year for each other. I've got to believe there was still such a thing as friendship, that somehow neighbors would reach over the fence and say hello to one another. And so, you know, I can't speak with confidence for the state of the world at that time. It could be literal. It could be that literally everybody was evil constantly. People were kicking their own babies and stabbing their neighbors in the back. I don't know. But I've got to believe that this is not so much literal as it's meant to portray a picture of the depth of the fallenness of human beings, of the deep and far reach of the corruption of sin in every aspect of human society and the human being. You know, when I think of it this way, um, it, it's how the Calvinist theologians came up with the doctrine of total depravity. And if you're a, a theology hound, um, you, you know what I'm talking about. It, it says, among other things, that every corner of our being has been touched by sin. That it doesn't mean that literally, right this minute while you're listening, you're plotting murder or something like that. It doesn't mean that we are never, ever capable of what would pass to human eyes as moral goodness. We are capable of that. But what it says is even in our best and finest moments, when I'm giving CPR to somebody I know has a communicable disease because I want to save their life even if it costs me mine. I mean, that's pretty good, right? If I'm acting like Mother Teresa or, or one of those doctors who went, who went to a, a third world country and was binding the wounds of the lepers knowing that he himself would get leprosy. Even in our finest moments of selflessness and nobility, what this doctrine says is even then, there is some part of all of that that is still touched by the corruption that entered the world through the fall of man. There remains in the human being no untouched, pure pocket of morality and being that is unreservedly good. Everything about us has fallen. It's fallen. Here, here's an analogy I heard that's not a perfect one-to-one -one analogy, but it helped me get the idea. Imagine that, and this is a bit of an absurd and very strained analogy, so just stay with me. Imagine you're dying of thirst and you're wandering through the desert, and all of a sudden you come upon a laboratory. Already you can see I'm we're really stretching here, right? And you get inside this lab, and what you find is a scientist working very busily, and there is this glorious cooler of ice-cold, fresh water. And so you reach for the nearest cup, and you start pouring the water, and it just makes that wonderful sound, you know, blah, 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 and it just the bubbles are forming, and you're getting ready to drink it, and the scientist finally notices you, and he says, before you raise it to your lips, don't drink that! And your first question, of course, is why? Is the water bad? He says, no, the water is perfectly drinkable. It's excellent water, but I just had some virus in that cup, and it's very, very deadly. And the point of that is that the water you pour into the vessel may be exceedingly pure, but everything that touches that container is inherently by contact also corrupted. What that means is this. We as fallen human beings are not capable of a goodness that gives us the right to stand before God on our own two legs. I have done a, a, a great many good things, and so have you. I know it. You wouldn't be here if that wasn't true of your life. You'd probably be in jail somewhere, or very far away from other people because you'd be, be shunned. Most of us, like it or not, have done lots and lots of good things. But here's the standard God is using. You see, for every one of us, We've been born into a world that's fallen. This is the air we breathe. From the very first generation on, 
No, Adam and Eve were the only two who ever experienced what life was like in a sinless world. Every other human being ever born after them was born already into a world marked by sin, fallen in corruption. It's the air that we breathe. It's like asking a fish if he feels wet. We don't know because this has been the boundary markers of our reality for as long as we've been alive. Now given that situation, right, we might start to think there is such a thing as goodness on the earth. And we measure ourselves with the Mother Teresa and say, you know, I think there are other people on the earth who are as good as Mother Teresa. And I will never bring her low. I mean, she is, as far as human beings go, one of the best we got, baby. I mean, you, you can't do a whole lot better than Mother Teresa. That's why she's a universal symbol of moral goodness and humility. But that is not the theater in which God is viewing the movie. It's as if we're watching the standard edition. He's watching IMAX widescreen. He sees something we don't see. Because while this is the only world we've ever known, our only frame of reference, God can simply not unremember the glory of the original creation. He sees what it was meant to be, what it was supposed to be. He looks at His own Son and sees what it still can be. But everything in between that is nothing but a deadly reminder of how far everything had gone to pot. And that's why though we stand with the Mother Teresa and say, look at my goodness, compared to everyone else, I have stood tall. And God says, yes you have, given your surroundings and the circumstances of a fallen world, you have risen quite high, but you will never rise high enough for me to forget what you were always meant to be. The very highest you attain doesn't even show up on the graph of what we were meant to be. We have lost the glimpse of the former glory of creation. When you gaze at Jesus Christ and you read of Him in the Bible, you begin to get the picture again of what humanity is supposed to be. That is the standard. That is the picture God Himself holds in His heart when He thinks about what we're meant to be. What He defines as goodness. And every other thing... I don't know if you've ever been in science, but I, I remember when I was in, in, in grad school doing scientific research, that we would do experiments where some readings weren't even worth taking because they fell below the minimum scale of that graph. They were minuscule enough that though there was a dot, a reading, it was too small to even matter. And I want us to understand, this is not to belittle Mother Teresa or every good thing you've done. Compared to the rest of us fallen roaches, you may be the most prized roach in God's kingdom. But you're still a roach. And this is not to insult humanity or to poo-poo all over all the great things that make life wonderful. It is instead to open a shutter that has been closed for a very long time and say, can you smell the fresh air? Can you see the, the light radiating from a picture that is so far greater than our highest measure of goodness? Can you see what God is obsessed with when He looks at His earth and His creation? Can you see it? Because if you can start to see it, you will understand his profound disappointment with what is. You understand why the prophet Isaiah can say, even our most righteous acts are like filthy rags. And I'm so insulted and offended by that when I read it as a human being. But if I can understand what God sees, what he longs for, I can begin to understand statements like that. It is in this context of a world filled with imperfection, that it's said of Noah that he is, by the way, there's a water cooler picture. It is in this context that it says, but Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you've got to be very careful how you read verse 8. The most obvious and simplistic reading is, oh, well, God was really depressed looking down on the earth because everybody was so messed up. But then he was like scanning, scanning, all of a sudden, oh, out of the periphery, there's Noah. Noah's like, dude, man, I'm like, come on, don't kill me too. I'm pretty good. I gave to the Santa outside the Walmart and, you know, like, I'm, I'm doing good stuff. Please don't kill me too. And, and then the, the idea is, of course, and God noticed how good Noah was and God poured his favor upon him. But that's not the right way to read it. When you look at the sequence of, of the story of Noah, it begins with not his own righteousness and all of his blameless ways and the fact that he walked with God, but it begins with this profound statement, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is not an active thing. It wasn't like Noah's going, where's the favor? Where's the favor? There it is. It's not an active pursuit, but it is passive. Noah received something from the Lord which made him who he was. In fact, that word favor is a Hebrew word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it for you. It's vaguely something like chen. Okay? <laughs> hurts my mouth. It's a word that is better really translated grace. Grace. It's not favor like you're my favorite. It's like favor as in special consideration. An undeserved break. Something which allows you to rise above what you would be if you were unassisted. And so what we learn here is that the beginning of Noah's story is that God did something to him. He gave something to Noah which was not given to others. Because God had a purpose for Noah. Noah left to his own devices would very likely have been like the rest of humanity. In fact, after he gets out of the ark, he gets himself into a little bit of trouble. He gets into a drunken stupor, his son sees his nakedness, and, and it becomes a family dysfunction and a, a real problem. It's not like Noah was above sinning and that's what drew God's heart to him. And if we read it that way and we teach it that way, we make a huge mistake. Because there's never been, inclusive of Noah, a human being other than Jesus Christ, who ever approached God on their own merits, who said, look at me, I'm good enough. I'm good enough to be the agent of salvation. Look at me, I'm good enough to be held up as a role model for the rest of humanity. There has never been any human being who had the right to think of themselves that way apart from Jesus Christ. You take away verse 8, everything else changes in Noah's story. Noah received grace from the Lord. I think that grace amounts to this. While the rest of the world was busy ignoring God, running far from God, God allowed Noah to hear his voice, to know who he was. That doesn't mean that the rest of the world had no chance for that, but that somehow God pricked Noah's heart so that he would listen. And Noah, having heard and entered a relationship with God, began to live out the fruit of this favor or grace which he received. In other words, Noah would have been probably just another man, but because of the favor and grace of God, he began to live out this identity in himself. And what we see then was Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, for Noah what? Walked with God. That is the basis of the ongoing maintenance of Noah's goodness. It wasn't like Noah really meditated. He got up on the mountain, did the lotus position and went, Goodness, come out of me. Ignore the world, push out the dark, let in the light. It wasn't Noah's method to being righteous. 
Everything good about Noah is beginning and ending with the fact that God in His mercy related to him, walked with him. That is the only place that anyone ever draws true goodness. You cut God out of the picture, there is no such thing as human goodness. That is one of the the central points of the story of the flood. And it's very, very important that we understand this about Noah. He was not a good man, but he was a man who God made good. Because God had a purpose for Noah. He intended to do something horrific, to blot out all life, all all life that drew in the breath of fresh air to live. He was going to wipe it all out. And the purpose he had for Noah was to make sure that death was not the final chapter in the story of creation, but that life could have another chance. He was, in fact, control-alt-deleting his creation and rebooting the system of the world. Anybody who's ever owned a PC and gotten the blue screen of death and you've finally erased everything and then you've reinstalled, I've done this so many times, reinstalled the whole operating system, restored all your apps, copied all your data back and the first time you reboot it and you hear the chime and there it is and you just feel so good. It'll be a matter of six hours before the viruses and the malware gets you again, right? And you have to defrag them another day later. But at least for the first day, you feel pretty good about having rebooted everything. And that was God's intention. And Noah was Norton. Did you get it? Noah was going to be the one he would use to really set the right foundation for the new system that would come. I'm so grateful for that. Because if the moral of the story is Noah was the best man on earth and that's why he got to live, well, we're all hosed. Go home. All right? Unless you're going to stand up in front of these 200 and some odd people and say, hey, guess what? I'm pretty much like Noah. Of all of y'all, I'm the best. The rest of you might as well go home. I'm going to meet God. I'm going to live. I feel sorry for you. It stinks to be you at the judgment. I'm just curious. Any takers on that? Anybody want to just kind of make a, a guess that they might be the most righteous person in the church? I mean, some of, some of us are behaving as if we believe that, right? But I, honestly, is there anybody who wants to make a public stand once and for all and will we'll applaud you? That's right. Aren't you so glad that the moral of the story is not only the best guy on earth gets to live, but that God in His grace makes people good? And it's in the context of that relationship of trusting God, walking with Him, that goodness begins to take over the dark in the human life. That's the moral of the story is that apart from grace, there is no hope. Nobody is good enough to get on that ark. Nobody inclusive of Noah. And if we make him the hero of the story, what a stupid story it becomes. A dude with his three sons and their wives get on a boat and reinstate the dysfunction of the human race within one generation. That's a great story. It's a dumb story if you take God out of that picture. He is the only one who makes Noah able to get on that ark. Are you with me so far? So don't get too far with the Noah. Was a, he's not, I'm not saying Noah is a bad man. It's just that the full point is Noah is not a good man. He is a man whom God has made good. Let me give you another point here. Noah's ark is not a children's story. I did a little Google search for images related to Noah's ark. And here's what I pulled up on the first six pages of results. Anybody who's got a baby on the way, um, you might want to get these from me for your nursery. Here we go. 
Ooh, that's a good one. That's cute. It's almost like precious moments. Oh, that's, this is my favorite right here. <laughs> if I built an ark, that would be the ark. You know, listen, what's the point of all of this? In our culture, especially inside the church, we've got this crazy idea that Noah's Ark is a children's story because there's weather and there's a boat and there's a friendly old man and you know, Uncle Noah and he's got the boat and all these animals, cuddly animals, two by two, ah, they're coming. And, and we think somehow that is such a cute and cuddly story. I'm so indebted to Donald Miller in his great book, Blue Like Jazz. There's some good stuff, some really rotten stuff in there, but in the book, he says something that I really love. This poignant insight about the Noah's, Noah's Ark story. Let me read that excerpt for you. This is Donna Miller writing. I associated much of Christian doctrine with children's stories because I grew up in church. My Sunday school teacher had turned Bible narrative into children's fables. They talked about Noah and the Ark because the story had animals in it. They failed to mention that this was when God massacred all of humanity. It took me a while to realize that these stories, while often used with children, are not at all children's stories. I think the devil has tricked us into thinking so much of biblical theology is a story fit for kids. How do we come to think the story of Noah's Ark is appropriate for children? Can you imagine a children's book about Noah's Ark, complete with paintings, of people gasping in gallons of water, mothers grasping their children while their bodies go flying down white rapid rivers, the children's tiny heads being bashed against rocks or hung up in fallen trees. I don't think a children's book like that would sell very many copies. That's pretty graphic. It's the way Donald Miller writes. He doesn't pull punches. He wants you to feel what he's seeing. What he's seeing. The bottom line is this. Noah's Ark and the story of the flood is not at all a children's story. It is one of the most horrible stories of our collective human history. Nothing quite so terrible has ever happened. You take the tsunamis and the, the meteor showers that come and blow up in, in forests and kill people. Forest fires, I don't care what it is, nothing has ever visited the human race as devastating as the judgment of God as He unleashed His wrath on the disappointment of a fallen creation as he judged sin as it was proliferating on the earth. This was not God throwing a temper tantrum. This was God demonstrating to all of creation that there is a God who oversees things and he doesn't think that sin is a joking matter. He doesn't think it's funny to high-five someone else and say, see you in hell, bro, let's party. When he thinks about sin, he sees all of the human brokenness, all of the lost potential, Every kid who ever committed suicide because his parents never showed him one ounce of real love. Every wife who cries herself to sleep because she was abandoned. Every person who mourns the loss of a family member or loved one who was murdered by someone else. Every kid who's hungry because we are eating enough to get ourselves fat. And 25,000 people in the world die every day to hunger. That's what God sees and feels. He sees the full weight of how everything here is not the way it's supposed to be. How messed up it all is. And it's all because of sin. Because of one little decision in a married couple's life to eat a piece of fruit. You can minimize it like that and say, what's the big deal? Why is God 
Why does he have such a problem? Why is he such a stickler for little details? Because God made something perfect. And it just all went to hell because of sin. And I want to challenge every one of you this morning, as the Lord has been challenging me. I mean, what is your attitude about sin? As you're logging onto your computers and clicking on those sites, man, this is such a bad habit. One of these days, I've got to lick this. I just, Lord, help me. Here we go again. Darn it. You know, the reason we struggle so much with sin is because I think the story of the flood is a children's story to us. And that attitude flows over the edges of the Bible into the way we think about God. Surely God is my buddy Jesus, as we, we saw portrayed in the movie Dogma. Surely God is the giant snuggles bear in the sky. He gives me nice gifts and He forgives my sins. Why do we even know what sin is? We understand a concept of sin because there is a holy God who has drawn the measuring line to show us this is what He wanted, this is what He got. And He is not okay with the gap. Not nearly as okay as we are with the differential between what should be and what actually is. And because, like I said, it's the air we breathe, most of us have grown very comfortable in this sewage pond of dysfunction we call human life. That's pretty pessimistic, isn't it? But I can only say that because I'm starting to smell the rare air of the real picture of what it's supposed to be. And I think when the church is at its most beautiful, we begin to see flashes of brilliance. Little snapshots in this horrible moving picture. Little snapshots of peace. Just like those flashbacks in the Passion of the Christ, in the midst of His greatest torment and physical suffering, they would have quiet flashbacks when the audience is just up to here. It's too much. And they bring us back to a quiet room where Jesus is sprinkling water on the face of Mary and chatting about a chair that He's making. And it's that kind of a thing. This world is nowhere near what it's supposed to be. You and I know that deep in our hearts. We try so hard to make it like heaven, to have our, our comfortable suburban existences and our two cars and our, our nice healthy kids and our health plans and insurance. We try to make this place heaven on earth, but somewhere deep in our gut, you and I both know that this ain't it. No matter how much money you have or how good your body looks, this ain't it down here. This isn't it. But once in a while, you walk into the people of God and when they are at their best walking with Jesus Christ, you see a flash of brilliance. Something that says, hey, I couldn't take it anymore, but I saw something. I smelled this wonderful aroma. Something like the way I think God wanted things to be. I, I, I received an act of unconditional love or just no strings attached forgiveness. Where else do you get that? Where do you see something like that in our world? I saw selfless sacrifice. I saw real generosity. And as you look at those things, your heart begins to hope again. The story of the ark is a story about how seriously God takes sin. It's a reminder that there's an administrator on this network. that You can't just do whatever you feel like and go on pretending that everything is just okay. Because everything is very much not just okay. And in America, we have more than any other culture that has ever walked this earth. A thousand and one forms of medication to lull us into the trance that actually 
it ain't so bad down here. It's all right. You know, I don't live in the biggest house in this church, but we got a room for everything. I have heat in the winter. And except for the exception of three days, three very bad days a couple years ago, we've had AC every summer. When I turn on the faucet, clean water comes out. When I flush, the toilet works most of the time. It's a reminder that this God we're called into relationship with, He's a serious God. You know, I think the reason we can live with idolatry is because God is simply too small. The God of the flood is the same God who presents to us the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. He's the same God who watches over your sick little boy in the hospital and brings peace to your heart to say, I'm going to make him better. That same warm, inviting, loving, merciful God is nonetheless the God of the universe. And if we ever forget that, if we ever reduce the story of the flood to a beautiful, cute little story of animals in a boat, well then it's no wonder that we will continue to live as if God is some kind of big joke, faceless vending machine somewhere up in the heavens. What's interesting is that in verse 9-1, after Noah and his family emerged from the storm onto dry land once again, listen to what God does. Once again, it's not about just a command. God takes the first action. God blessed Noah. God poured something into Noah's life apart from which everything else he would hear from God, he'd be powerless to do. God blesses Noah. And then, and by the way, just a little aside, not too much of a a side road, but if you're a parent, can I tell you that this is one of the most missing elements of modern parenting in the church? Is we keep telling our kids commands, but we don't bless them to be able to obey. Pray blessings on your kids. Pour the grace of God into them. Show such unconditional love that their hearts can actually have space to obey God. Let's move on. So God blesses Noah and his sons. And he says to them, listen, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you, be fruitful, six verses later, and you, speaking to the son, Noah and his sons, you be fruitful and multiply. And listen, that word again from Genesis 1, team or swarm on the earth and multiply in it. Now this is not God just saying, duh, we got to repopulate this planet. That's not the point. It's not just getting bodies all over the ground again. What he's saying, and I imagine as the waters receded, that's exactly what they found was bodies all over the ground. Bloated, soaking wet, dead bodies. He said, no, I don't just want bodies like this covering the earth. I want you, you who are alive, you who saw my wrath, understand how seriously I take all this. Everyone else, that was their last dying thought. You know, and you have lived. You who know the favor and the grace of God. 